ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We've officially entered the third year of the Ukraine war. But for Vladimir Putin, there was always more at stake than just Ukraine. He's kept his eyes on bigger prizes, changing the international order that prevailed after the Cold War and creating a Russia restored to its former glory. Can he possibly succeed? Right now, his opponents are struggling. American aides held up in Congress. European leaders are squabbling about suddenly stepping up. But is it all fast enough? Meanwhile... Putin's influence seems to be growing, with more support not just from China and North Korea, but countries in the Middle East, Africa, even Latin America. So the question must be asked, is Putin winning? I'm Hamish MacDonald. I'm Geraldine Duke. This is Global Roaming. Yes, you know, Hamish, I think people might say, gosh, what a question to ask, is Putin winning? But I think we have to ask it because I think things are moving. We're not just going over old ground. There's a sense of a bigger battle, not just in Ukraine, for global hearts and minds underway now. I think we've got to sort of look at it. Yeah, I've been reflecting a bit on this because we've been marking this two-year anniversary. I know you don't like I don't. I like second. I can't think what the problem with second is, but go ahead. (laughs) I've been corrected. Uh, Two-year anniversary, second anniversary uh, of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But actually, there's a much longer timeline here. I was in Ukraine back in January, February of 2014, when Yanukovych, the the pro-Russian president, fell in Ukraine. Uh, The snipers in the Maidan at that time. That was the central square, isn't it? Yeah, of of course. Uh, And I was also in Mariupol in August, September of 2014, when there was actually a brief Russian advance towards Mariupol on the southern coast uh, of Ukraine. So, Actually, this conflict goes back much longer, and we know Putin's sense of history, his place in history, but also Ukraine's place, in his mind, in Russia's history, uh, which is a much bigger story. And on top of that, we've obviously been talking about, thinking a lot about Navalny and his death and and what that may mean for Russia's future Mm. and what it signals about Putin's grip on power. Uh, I was actually also in Moscow when Boris Nemtsov was killed. Ah. Uh, so that was on the Bolshoi Bridge. Several just... people, can I just inter- several people have written me, because I've got a lot of people who write to me about Russia, reminding us that people like Boris Nemtsov and Anna Politkovskaya, if you yeah, recall, the journalist. the journalist, they said, don't forget them. Navalny is simply the latest. Yes. So that was February 2015, the centre of Moscow. Uh, he had seven or eight gunshots in him. And there was this talk at that time that this was going to galvanise the Russian opposition, that this was a moment and that it it showed how weak Putin actually was that he needed to do this. And look where we are. There was no change. No. Nothing has shifted and this guy remains in power, remains bold and brazen. And, and so that's why I think it's relevant for us to be asking a bigger question about whether Putin is winning. Yes, look, I think it's a very hard question to ask, particularly in that week after we were processing the death of Navalny. And obviously this hit the Europeans via their Munich Security Conference, which has become an increasingly important part of the agenda held every year. And at that conference, uh, Yulia Navalnyaya was uh, scheduled to speak and she was there. 
And lo and behold, she gets the message about her husband dying. Minutes later, apparently, I mean, it makes you go cold. She comes in and says, I've received word that my husband has died. We will keep fighting. They're all on their feet. They're stunned. There's never been anything quite like it. And suddenly the Europeans are fundamentally faced with a a very personal sort of sense of what is shifting and they have to make decisions. Some really interesting emails coming into us at Global Roaming so far. Thank you for sending them. We are reading all of them. And on that point, Geraldine, there's a guy, Russ Reed, that's written to us this week. Uh, Some interesting points that he makes. He says, I think it's reasonable to remember Navalny with respect for his anti-corruption work and his resistance to what he calls Tsar Putin. But the media does so with a surprisingly selective memory. Most choose to ignore his political past, instead glorifying his more clean-cut image. And he references Navalny's flirtations with the Russian far-right, ultranationalism in the early 2000s. Then he asks us, is it really that complicated? Carton listeners, readers, viewers hold two thoughts in their head at the same time. And it's perhaps a reasonable question both about what's going on inside of Russia but outside as well, given what we've seen in this last week in in Europe? Oh, look, I just think we do have to be able to be nuanced. And it's not a nice linear story. Russia never has been, and it won't be. Um, And that is exactly what is facing leaders right now. Uh, uh, So Macron says uh, in the last week, maybe we should be sending European troops onto the ground in Ukraine. The Germans respond, slapping him uh, Mm. back slightly, saying, well, no, buddy, not so fast. You should be spending more in terms of funding Ukraine and and supplying weapons. Uh, And I know you don't love me talking about Trump and the prospect of a second Trump presidency, but that's that's the context here. Right. It's certainly panicking them. They, they, to me, I, that's the word I would use, watching the Europeans really say, my God, this really could be something we've got to deal with. And um, and it could be. A, a, and it must be Did in the mind. Did you say that? It could be. <laughs> You're <laughs> affecting me, Hamish. <laughs> and it must be in the mind of Putin as well, which is why we're so excited to introduce this week's guest. Indeed we are, because Angela Stent has really been at the decision-making tables advising them for many years in America as they try to work out exactly how they do think about this changing world. She's now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she is the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. On top of all of that, Jerry, one particular feature uh, of Angela Stent's CV stands out to me and I think makes her fascinating to talk to on this episode is that she's actually met Putin. There's not that many people in the West that can speak with this level of, I suppose, proximity to Putin, uh, not just once, not just twice, 16 times she'd been in the room with him. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. Indeed. It's a pleasure to welcome Angela Stent. Angela, welcome to Global Roaming. I'm glad to be on your program. It sounds like a simple question, but I know it's infinitely more complicated. Is Putin winning? He's not winning the war in Ukraine, but Russia isn't losing either. Um, We have a situation with a war of attrition. The Russians have made some territorial gains recently, and certainly um, that's been very challenging for the Ukrainians. Putin thinks he's winning, however, um, because he looks at the United States, where we have this dysfunctional Congress and we can't even agree to give more support to Ukraine. He has the Europeans arguing with each other now, Germany and France, about whether France would send troops to Ukraine. Um, There are obviously groups in Europe uh, that are quite pro-Russian. 
And then he looks around the globe and he sees what he calls the world majority, uh, what we might call the global south. And these are nations that haven't condemned Russia, that listen sympathetically to Russia's explanation that it's defending the world from American and European neo-imperialism. Russia's back in Africa in a way that it hasn't been for decades. So I think he thinks he's winning. He's awaiting the results of the U.S. presidential election in November, and he's hoping that that will bring into office a president that will see supporting Ukraine. See, Angela, in other words, um, it's not just about winning on the battlefield, as you pointed out. It's it, it becomes a matter of politics at the moment and influence gathering, which is really something that should concern simply all of us, whether or not we're close to it uh, at all. It certainly should. I mean, from the Russian perspective, and you hear it not only from them, but again, um, BRICS countries, countries in the global south, as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war, the international system is changing. You know, even if we don't want to use the word multipolar, there are more centers of power arising. There are more of these kind of middle-sized countries who think that as a result of this war, they now have more self-determination, more agency, and that once the war is over, we're not going to go back to the system that we had before it began. So from Putin's point of view, these are all gains, even if the battlefield is still pretty tough. So can you expand on that a bit, please, Angela? Because you've mentioned what Putin calls the world's majority. You've also referenced it as the global south. You mentioned the BRICS countries, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. What exactly is it that Putin is trying to articulate and build? Who does it involve? Well, so, of course, the BRICS have recently expanded. You have Egypt, uh, you have Iran, um, you have a number of other new countries. Saudi Arabia may join. They haven't actually definitely said that they will. So from Putin's vantage point, any alliance system, any grouping that excludes the United States and the Europeans is a win. It's an alternative to what he sees, uh, again, as a Western-dominated international system. Um, and that's why you've seen Russia cultivating these countries in the global south since the war began. And most of these countries, I mean, big countries like India, you know, a very important partner of Russia, but also a partner of the United States and of other Western countries, they don't want to choose sides. Um, mm. So they have abstained on uh, on most of these United Nations General Assembly uh, votes on the war. They continue to trade with Russia. India has now become uh, Russia's largest importer of oil, along with China. Um, it's still a major importer of Russian weapons, although it's now turning more to the West for those weapons. So from the Russian point of view, it's creating, you know, what they call a multipolar system, a system where the U.S. is just one of a number of different players um, and where Russia, um, in Putin's view, will have more influence. And as I say, they're combining this with, for instance, going back into Africa, even though the Wagner Group has largely been disbanded. It's being merged into other private military groups that are in Africa. They're supporting uh, a number of authoritarian rulers there. They're making a lot of money um, from concessions with uh, diamonds and gold and other precious mm -hmm. metals. So, but the, but the main thing is this is a world where there are many different centers of power and where Russia emerges as a great power 
uh, not only with its own sphere of influence, which is what it's doing in Ukraine, but with a broader appeal to the Middle East, to Africa, to Latin America, and to some Asian countries. So does it mean that 2024 is really a make-or-break year then? Is it emerging as that because it goes beyond the simple question of uh, battlefield tactics? I think it's a very important year. Clearly, again, it has to do with who comes to power in the US. And if Trump comes back to power, uh, you'll have a group of people who are isolationist, who are very skeptical about the alliance with Europe, who are also skeptical about alliances with uh, Japan and South Korea, um, alliances in general, including with Australia. And I think it would really, um, you know, it could change U.S. engagement around the globe. Um, and that would give countries like China uh, the potential for more influence, and even maybe Russia, despite its poor performance, at least in the beginning of this war, on the battlefield. And look, before we get to what we really want to talk to you about is what are the options then facing the United States, the the the, the superpower, given that you, you track a lot of these issues very, very closely. Can you just help us understand, is there any time in, in recent history or in the past that helps us sort of grasp or some sense of what time we're living through, what you've just sketched? When were we last in this situation of such changing values? Well, I mean, you know, we we had the Cold War period, but that was different because it was the United States and the Soviet Union, and China was still a minor player there. Um, And the Soviet Union, even though it was economically behind the West, obviously, um, did have more economic clout when it had its own sort of group of satellites. Um, You know, after World War II, obviously, you had the creation uh, of a new international system, again, which then uh, became the Cold War very soon after the end of World War II. Um, So that was a time of flux and change. I suppose also after World War I, when you had the disintegration of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, um, that was also a time, I think, of major change and, and redistribution of resources. But we haven't been through a period like this probably for at least 80 years. Angela, beyond the deep strategic thinking that you do about this, one of the reasons I was particularly keen to talk to you this week is that you're someone that's actually met Putin and quite a number of times, I think 16 in total, Mm -hmm. if I'm correct. What's the context? Do you sit with him having a cup of tea? What's that like? So um, for... 16 years, I attended something called the Valdai International Club. Um, And this was started in 2004. And it was a Kremlin idea uh, to invite foreign experts on Russia to come to Russia. So it was in that context that we had these smaller gatherings uh, with President Putin. They were usually dinners. The Russians weren't present. And then later on, there were a couple of times, I suppose, when it was tea. Uh, But they were always fairly small gatherings. Um, And so he was someone who was quite generous with his time in as much as, you know, people would start asking questions and he wouldn't stop uh, the Q&A. And and over the years, you know, one saw him emerge and evolve, um, you know, becoming much more strident in what he said uh, mm. about the West, about the United States, 
um, and certainly after 2014, sounding all of these themes that are now part of its repertoire, which is Russia as the leader of the conservative international and attacking wokeness in the West and saying that the West... The satanic uh, West. Right, exactly. <laughs> Angelina- satanic West, that we'd lost our way and that, you know, the West was no longer Christian and Russia was the true Christian nation. Did he, did he bring his dog with him as he did for Angela Merkel, that fascinating picture that we all saw, and he knew that she didn't like dogs, so he brought his big black Labrador along? <laughs> well, interestingly, once when we were in Sochi, I did meet Connie. Um, I think that was after Chancellor <laughs> Merkel had met him. And I have to say that walking with his dog, um, he looked somewhat more human than he looked at the other times. <laughs> I, I, uh, actually, so I don't know what happened to the dog, but I'm assuming the dog's no longer alive. That's sort of what I wanted to ask you about, though, Angela. You've met him on all of these occasions. Is he the caricature version that I suppose we see and are led to think about? Or is there a, a different dimension that you see when you, you're up close and talking to him? Well, he certainly wears a mask. Um, he's certainly someone who doesn't project warmth has a rather cold exterior. Um, He's someone who is in charge and really in possession of a lot of facts, particularly if they're about energy. Um, And and he's someone who listens carefully to questions, but he really has his own version of history. Um, If I have a minute or two, I can tell you a couple of true stories or anecdotes. Uh, At one dinner, there was a discussion about missile defense. And he suddenly said, well, the Russia and the United States could cooperate on missile defense, uh, just as the Soviet Union and the United States cooperated over the development of nuclear weapons during World War II. So a number of us looked at each other and we thought, is does he mean uh, Julius Rosenberg, you know, the spy ring <laughs> in the United States? And he then actually mentioned his name. So um, wow. that's one version of history. And then just one other yeah. one, uh, a British journalist asked him, uh, why is Lenin still embalmed in the mausoleum? And so Putin asked this person, you know, which country do you come from? Uh, and they said Great Britain. And then Putin launched in on this, well, why do you still have statues of Oliver Cromwell in Great Britain? After all, Cromwell and Lenin are rather similar since they both led revolutions and they were responsible for regicide. How amazing. What That is quite a story. I, I must ask you, I was going to do it later, but I'll do it now, given that the, the death of Navalny is sort of reverberating still, and that incredible calling card of his, the slogan, don't give up on a beautiful Russia of the future, which, you know, people like Khodorkovsky and Kasparov, the great dissidents who live in London, said, don't give up on Russia. I mean, is there a better Russia, in your view, that you could see? Is, is it, I presume you mean post-Putin, but I'd really love to hear... You know, you're such a scholar of Russia. What do you think? Well, if you look at a thousand years of Russian history, most of the time you've had authoritarian leaders who've repressed their populations. You've had a few times when you've had revolution and change. Uh, most recently, I would say the late, the latter years of Gorbachev and the earlier part of the Yeltsin presidency in the early to mid-1990s, when there really was change in Russia, when there was much more freedom of expression, when people could question things, when there was an honest confrontation with history. Uh, but we know what happened to that. But I'm not going to say that 
there couldn't be a better Russia. And I think it's very important that, you know, Alexei Navalny and then his, the people who followed him and the other, you mentioned Mikhail Sadokovsky and the other many opposition uh, people who are now living uh, in Europe or the United States since the launch of the war, they do believe in a better Russia. And one hopes that there will be a better Russia. I think the question is, you know, how long will it take until there's change there? Can we turn to the strategic now and what the options are for uh, the West in terms of supporting Ukraine and approaching Putin? I want to just park the, the haggling in the United States over the $60 billion of funding that's obviously still playing out. There's questions here in Australia as well. The Ukrainian ambassador just this week uh, fronted up to the National Press Club articulating specifically what additional resources Australia needs to give uh, Ukraine in order to help them along at this point. But you do sit inside those sort of smoke-filled rooms in Washington, maybe not so smoke-filled anymore. What conversations do you hear about the strategic options? Do you hear serious conversations about when it might be appropriate to say to Kiev, listen, now's your moment, sit down and negotiate, bring this thing to a close? So I would say within the US government, um, there is an understanding that this is not the time for Ukraine to negotiate. Uh, Putin isn't interested in negotiating. Well, let me rephrase that. Putin is quite interested in having people sit down and talk to <laughs> Russia and think they're negotiating um, so that, you know, they may not be supporting Ukraine that much. Is Putin actually interested in coming to an agreement with the Ukrainians? I don't think so, because I think he's, again, awaiting uh, the result of the U.S. presidential election and believing that Russia may win um, if all support for Ukraine dries up. So I think the conversations are about immediately among those who support Ukraine, and that's still a majority of people in the U.S. Congress. You know, it's been hijacked by an extreme minority, um, and it's still the majority of the American people. So the conversation there is, you know, how quickly can we get more assistance to Ukraine and the advanced weapons. Because as Zelensky himself has said, only the US can provide some of these most advanced weapons that Ukraine needs. Now, there is also, people of course are thinking about what would happen after the war ended, what kind of negotiations could there be? You know, what kind of a peace settlement could there be? Um, uh, they're, they're, of course, people are thinking longer term, but that's not on the immediate agenda. And I think the immediate agenda now, uh, in again, in the US government is to make sure that Ukraine does get the support from Congress and to continue giving them, you know, whatever they need um, to sustain their position. And then hopefully by 2025, possibly launch another counteroffensive. What are you making of the Europeans at the moment who seem to be, well, in my reading, panicking suddenly about possibly becoming their war to handle, looking at both what's happening in the US, but also looking at the battlefield situation? Is that affecting the debate in the US, watching the Europeans change? How fast is a question, of course, but they certainly are changing, I think. Well, I think most people in the U.S. now, including, you know, the Democrats and the people in the administration, understand that Europe needs to do more for its defense. And that, you know, 20 years ago when the Europeans talked about strategic autonomy, uh, you know, the officials in the U.S. paled. Now they understand there would be actually 
positive thing if the Europeans were able to develop more strategic autonomy, uh, because ultimately they're going to be the ones that are most affected by the outcome of this war. Um, and now, as you say, that they've been panicking about what they see as the erosion of U.S. support, um, and uh, realizing that they have, you know, they've had thirty years uh, where they really have most of those countries haven't done a, spent enough on defense, and that they really need to step up to it and do more. And Germany is particularly problematic here because even though Chancellor Scholz promised a Zeitenwende after the uh, invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Germany still hasn't spent its two percent of its GDP on defense, and they need to step up to it. Well, will they? What's your judgment? I mean, this is a terribly important question. Will they in time? I don't know whether they will. They're having economic problems at the moment. There's still, you know, people within the Social Democratic Party, certainly, who have big questions about whether they should be spending on more, more on defense. You have a rising, you know, the rising far right in Germany, the AFD, and a new uh, right-wing sort of populist party led by someone called Sarah Wagenknecht. And they're um, in favor of ending the war now and not spending much on defense. And maybe the Germany with Drawing from NATO, um, so I don't know whether the current coalition government, which itself, you know, is quite fractious, is going to be able to do what they say they want to do, which is to spend more on defense and build up their own weapons arsenals, which they don't have. So, to I suppose return in some ways to the initial uh, conversation about whether Putin is winning. I noticed Marsha Gessen right in the New York Times this week, terrific piece about uh, Navalny and, and his record, more complex history there, I suppose, than what some of the recent media reporting around his death has, has suggested. But she argues that anyone saying Putin getting rid of him, if indeed that's what's happened, is a sign of weakness. She says they're wrong. Actually, it shows that he is totally in charge. He can choose the timing of this. Do you agree? Well, I think, yeah, I would more or less agree with that. I mean, I think he had a dual message with Navalny's death, which to the domestic population in Russia is, don't you even think of questioning what I'm doing? Um, I will not let you do that and you'll go to prison. In other words, total control. And I think his message to the outside world is, I can do this if I want to. And by the way, to Russians who are living abroad and who oppose the war, we can also get you. Mm. I mean, they did it. <laughs> they did it with the Skripals mm. uh, in Great Britain. And They've that young helicopter that. pilot, they basically riddled him with bullets in Spain, the one who yep. defected. Yep, exactly. So, so that's so it's a message of strength. Well, in fact, in, it, the other side of the notion that he's strong is that, in fact, they're on borrowed time, that this is not a, a demonstration of strength. He's, he's spent up madly on equipping. He's, he's got a full war economy. And the argument is that he actually hasn't got a lot of money left. So it, he could be closer to d decline than we realise. Yes. And, you know, you have to wonder how many of people, particularly in the elite around him, uh, really favor continuing this war since they've been sanctioned, they've lost access to their bank accounts, homes, etc. in the West. They can't send their children and grandchildren to schools and universities there. They've become much more isolated. Um, and then you do have to wonder about uh, people both in the security services and in the military who are questioning some of what's going on. Angela Stan, so great talking to you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Good Angela. Good to talk to you. 
Well, I must say I enjoyed that conversation because it went into so many different parts and it had that element of history and looking back, which I really love because I think it's sort of, (laughs) it equips one very well, um, along with reflecting on the present day. I was struck, Hamish, by how she was effectively looking on at the US Congress in dismay, in a way, um, impotent to do anything about it. And now there she is sitting there at the right at the apex of so many decisions. And she's been there in those rooms, as we said, those smoke filled rooms. And yet there's that sense of very key people in the American administration sort of saying, whoa, we can't do anything here. Well, I don't think it's just a question for the Americans either. I mean, we here in Australia as well are being asked to give more to Ukraine. There's a long shopping list of what the Ukrainians mm. are asking us for. We saw that articulated this week at the at the National Press Club. Australia's already given something in the order of $900 million worth of support, mm. military support and aid to Ukraine. Uh, There is specific requests for more, as well as more advanced weaponry. But given the conversation we're having, the, the, I suppose, the the moment in the year where we'll know who the next US president might be, whether it's Mm. Biden or or Trump again, or even someone else, uh, I think will impact directly what happens next. And Australia does need to be ready for that. Are we all in with the Ukrainians, as we've been saying over the last two years? Or are we actually starting to pull back from this because it's becoming entrenched and there isn't a clear pathway forward? And of course, that then raises the question about whether allies need to say to Ukraine, now's your moment to negotiate at this point or, or down the track? Yeah, well, I think that's still to come. Another, I do believe, and I have come to believe, I haven't always, that this year, 2024, is just utterly crucial. A lot of things are in the, in the balance. We're, we're very early in the year. A lot can happen. But certainly people like Angela f- make you realise that we need multi-equipped and talented people like her sitting in there. I, I hope they sit in Australia's rooms too. And th- that's our idea, that we try to bring some of this complexity without overwhelming all of us. And, and I think there's, there is a lot still to come. Um, and certainly one of the things that we're really getting from you in your feedback is how interested a lot of you are in different parts of the world. It's been really very refreshing, I've got to say. People are suggesting that we do things you know, on South Africa, on Turkey, So there's a sense, I think, that the world is not as it was and Australia needs to actually be well equipped to understand where it might head. We do want to continue hearing from you. Feedback on episodes we've done as well as episodes we might do in the future. Uh, Felix has written to us, Geraldine, saying, I've just been listening to your last two shows, particularly taken by both interviewees' discussions about AUKUS. At last, we seem to be getting around to thinking about What it's actually useful for, says Felix, and the bang for buck involved. He says, I've lived long enough now to know that building ships is not easy, takes yards with generations of very skilled tradies to do it successfully, so much more so for submarines. We urgently need to rethink it all, he says. All the best from a happy listener. And another one from George Hanna, which is quite interesting for both of us, thanking us for a balanced and challenging podcast, so thank you. Interesting to see the difference, says George, in perception between you two. Hamish seemed more conservative and willing to go along with the current government's thinking, while Geraldine seemed ready for a rethink about our defence strategy. Maybe because I'm of her age, uh, I am inclined to agree with her position. (laughs) Well, it's not your generation that's going to be paying for this, Geraldine. 
you know what I mean? No. So perhaps that does flavour uh, some of what uh, uh, I think about AUKUS and the, particularly the funding questions as well as the logistics. I do hope George sends that feedback also to the Australian newspaper. And look, we do know that some of you have had troubles contacting us through the Radio National website. Let me assure you, we have most definitely acted on this and it should be resolved by the time you're hearing this. There is a way to contact us directly, of course, and that's by emailing us at global.roaming at abc.net.au. That's global.roaming at abc.net.au. And look, we do welcome very robust feedback. We can be criticised as well. (laughs) Keep the suggestions coming, do, please. Well, that brings us to our recommendations. Jerry. what have you got? Well, look, if you've got four minutes spare, I'm sure you have, can I suggest you go to YouTube, a YouTube grab, which we're going to post on our show notes, of the Polish Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski at the UN last week. It's a gorgeous little four-minute rebuttal of the Russian approach, shall we say, given that that's what's dominated us today. It is so stylish and clever. And a very quick extra one, uh, the BBC... The Briefing Room, um, it's a podcast and it is a brilliant discussion on whether technology will change warfare of the future. It, it's a must listen. Jerry, I'm going to have to ban you from bringing two <laughs> recommendations every week. Every, every week. Not every week. It was just one. All right, just the one recommendation uh, from me, abiding by the rules. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to recommend the Marsha Gessen piece from The New Yorker. We mentioned it earlier. Uh, really thoughtful, nuanced piece about Alexei Navalny, his political record, his life, uh, and also his legacy. If you are thinking about these issues, genuinely recommend that for your consumption. And next week, Hamish, we're heading to Melbourne for the ASEAN Summit, and we're going to be on the floor of the summit and meeting various leaders, which I think should be fabulous. Yeah, very excited to say that we will have our first heads of government on this program. We've always wanted to showcase some of the big and powerful voices in our region, and uh, very excited to say that we'll be doing that next week. Now, uh, if you are listening on other platforms, please give us a star rating, give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe to us, make sure you auto-download as well. Uh, You can also leave comments on some of the platforms and we would really appreciate that. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.